Before we begin, we want to remind you about the bargain offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the wealth of stuff available to subscribers. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff there, videos, interviews, and an archive of unparalleled treasures. Use POD20 at checkout or newscientist.com to get your bargain. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor. This week we welcome a new co-host to the show, Valerie Jameson. Hi Val, welcome aboard. Hi Rowan. Val is a physicist and is creative director of New Scientist Live, and she's taking over for a while from Penny Sarche while she's on maternity leave. Well done, Penny. Congratulations. Thanks so much for your hard work over the last year. We're all going to miss you at New Scientist. Uh, but Val, very excited to have you in the pod. Yeah, I'm really glad to be a regular here now. And this week we're joined by New Scientist Features Editor, Kat Delange. Hi, Kat. Hi. On this week's show, we're looking at the mind-boggling idea that gravity itself weighs something. Uh, We're checking in on three Mars missions about to launch in the next few weeks, including two from countries that have never been there before. And we're hearing about how meat and dairy farming is producing too much nitrogen for the planet to cope with. And we're also celebrating the birthday of the Higgs boson. But first, it's been six months since the world changed, since we entered the COVID era. In this week's magazine, we're taking a look at that and what we've learned in that time. Kat, do you want to kick off? Yeah, so as you can imagine, a lot has changed. Uh, this was a novel coronavirus, so we were really starting from from a poor understanding. Um, and this week, um, our reporter Jess Hamzalu has had a look at what we've learned in the last six months. So from a public understanding point of view, probably the most obvious thing is the list of symptoms that's changed. Yeah, because at first, we everyone just said, oh, it's just like a bad flu. Yeah, and now we know, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the symptoms include things like loss of smell, exhaustion, numbness, diarrhoea, weight loss, brain fog, you know, rashes, all sorts of things. And this idea that it was a flu-like illness was something, an assumption really, that, that got many governments off on the wrong foot. Yeah, so a lot of nations already had a plan in place for pandemic flu. So they got a bit blindsided and stuck on, on this idea and tried to just roll out their flu plans. But this virus is very different. Um, so the major blunder here was that flu has an incubation period of around one or two days. So that's the time between somebody becoming infected and when they show symptoms. So this makes it extremely difficult to trace the contacts of an infected person with the flu before they get sick themselves. But coronavirus, on the other hand, appears to have an incubation period of about five to six days, potentially even several weeks. And that much slower, it's much slower moving than flu. So that means contact tracing and isolation and quarantine can be really effective, can't they? Yeah, and uh, most countries didn't figure this out for a while. Um, And flu can also sweep through a population in a matter of weeks, but coronavirus is much slower moving. It can stick around for much longer and have lasting health effects for those who survive. This is one idea why the idea of waiting to achieve herd immunity rather than taking taking action to limit the impact of the virus straight away. And this is a strategy that uh, the UK government and the Swedish government considered at the beginning was really quite widely dismissed by the scientific community. And what about lockdowns, Kat? What have we learned? So actually, it's not a one size 
fits all with lockdowns. As a general rule, we've learned that you should lock down early and you should lock down hard to have the best results. So countries that did this, like China and New Zealand, they had success in taming the spread of the virus. In the UK, modelling has suggested that uh, if we'd have implemented lockdown just a week earlier, we could have avoided 20,000 deaths. Um, but if you look at low and middle income countries where lockdown isn't sustainable for long, long periods of time, going into lockdown too soon can actually be a mistake. And what about face masks? This is one thing I'm really confused about because different countries different, seem to be doing different things. It's mandatory in some places uh, and not in others. Um, and even this week, the president of the Royal Society, Venki Ramakrishnan, came out saying that you should wear a mask in shops and restaurants. What's going on? There has been really mixed messaging around this, partly because we didn't understand how the virus spreads at the beginning. The WHO now recommends that masks are worn in shops, schools and on public transport or anywhere that physical distancing isn't possible. Um, but even now, there's no robust, randomised, really good controlled trials to show that mask wearing in the community does slow the virus. Despite this, most scientists will argue that you know, as the use of face masks is supported by a handful of small studies, you know, and they don't do any harm. So it's probably worth doing it, at least in places where it's hard to keep away from other people. I can't know. We've been hearing about the possible airborne transfer of the virus. Um, I, I thought it was airborne. What's all this about? So it is airborne. Um, there's there's been a bit of a splash about this in the media in the last few days because a group of scientists have written a letter saying that we need to take the risk of airborne transmission more seriously. Um, so what they're talking about is that the WHO until now has said that the real risk from airborne transfer is from larger droplets that spread, say, when someone sneezes nearby. Um, but th there is new emerging evidence that very small droplets that linger in the air could also be a problem if we're spending lots of time in close contact with other people indoors. So if you imagine being in a crowded place, you know, you're close to someone who has the virus, who's laughing and cheering in a poorly ventilated, crowded pub, for instance, then the evidence is starting to suggest that could be more problematic than, than we thought originally. And what about the, the second wave? We have seen pictures in the UK of massive crowds of people on beaches and people out carousing in Soho and um, we've heard about illegal raves, gatherings, but we haven't yet seen a second wave of the virus, a peak, a second peak. So what's happening about the second wave? Well, it, it might be on its way. And the UK's deputy chief medical officer says that a second peak or even a second wave hasn't been ruled out. Um, and some people are wondering, you know, where is this second wave? Because we have seen restrictions ease quite dramatically um, since May. So one explanation might be that we haven't seen it because the summer temperatures have helped to quash infections for now anyway. Um, and also when you see all these people out and about in, in Soho or, or in parks on a sunny day, what you're not seeing is all the people who are staying at home. And um, studies do suggest that people have complied quite well with the evidence so far. And it has only been a few weeks since people really started to go out more. And it does take time to build up the number of cases. We have seen countries have second waves after easing restrictions. So Israel is currently in a second wave. South Korea has said that, that it has a second wave, although the numbers are still relatively small. Some parts of Spain have gone into lockdown and, and certain states in the US have reversed their, the restrictions that they've, that they've eased so far. 
And like we saw that in Leicester in the UK as well, a, a local return to lockdown after there was a resurgence there, didn't we? Yeah, and that might end up being a pattern that we ha- that we have to live with. So there's loads more in the magazine to talk about this, but um, I just something that jumped out at me was the horror movies thing. This was the finding, yeah, that people who watch a lot of horror movies seem to be more psychologically resistant to COVID nineteen. What is going on there? Yeah, this is a this is a survey of US volunteers about the sorts of films that they like to watch. And then they, they combine that with questions about how they're coping with the pandemic. And they found that fans of horror movies were less prone to negative mental states during this time. Um, I don't know. Are, are you two fans of horror, Val? Oh, I'm one of these people who hides behind my coat when I'm at the cinema. Um, the Ugh. trouble I have with horror films is they just stick in my head. You know, ever since I've seen the Blair Witch Project, I mean, that just completely put me off yeah. any kind of campaign. It just like it still sticks in my head that movie. What about I'm with you, you Val. I'm a complete, I'm a complete softy. I can't watch anything before I watch any film. I have to ask my friends, like, is this scary? And if it's scary at all, I can't watch it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a scaredy cat like that. Um, but I'm not really a, a fan of horror movies. But um, as a biologist, I, I think I am curious about sort of unpleasant things or things that pe- normal people think are unpleasant. You know, biological things. Well, that's quite interesting because in this um, study, in this survey, they found that people with morbid curiosity, which is, I think, what you're describing, had a different profile to the horror film fans. And the morbidly curious um, were kind of able to enjoy things despite the pandemic. So that's quite a good situation to be in. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if I'm morbidly curious, but anyway. (laughs) Um, Just something about lockdowns. I was just reading the new Hilary Mantel novel the mirror and the light and and weirdly there's a lot in there about lockdowns and quarantine in in tudor times 500 years ago um listen to this bit from the book it has been a dangerous summer for fear of the plague the queen keeps a reduced household king lives separate the isha also with small state a messenger called bold who goes daily between race and the cromwells is taken with an unknown distemper and must isolate so there's social distancing and quarantine in tudor times I find that really reassuring. Yeah, well, yeah. The, the Tudors, um, you know, they didn't know what a virus was or a bacterium, but they did know quite a lot about um, about health. You know, they knew that infections spread among the poor um, and you should avoid dirt. And they knew that cities were a focus for infection and they knew to ban crowds. Um, uh, so there were no public ceremonies when there was plague suspected. So they were on top of this. You'll know that often here we have Life Form of the Week. That's our celebration of newsworthy and sometimes unloved organisms. But this week we're shaking things up. Yeah, this week we're looking at subatomic particle of the week. A celebration Yay. of the <laughs> It's a celebration of the quantum entities at the root of reality. <laughs> um, and this week, in honour of its birthday, we're focusing on maybe the most famous particle of all, the Higgs boson. Yes, the Higgs boson celebrated its eighth birthday last week. Uh, physicists discovered it in 2012 um, by accelerating protons to the speed of light and smashing them together at the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, I was news editor at the time of New Scientist, and uh, I remember very well all the excitement. It was massive news. But remind us, Val, why it caused such a stir, an international stir. 
It was, it was massive at the time, and that's because the Higgs boson is the final missing piece in the standard model of particle physics. That's a theory that describes all the fundamental particles and the forces that operate them between them. Crucially, the Higgs boson explains how all the other particles get their mass. You know, really, we know why we're as heavy as we are because we're made of lots of atoms. We know that atoms are made of smaller particles. Yet the Higgs boson explains why those fundamental particles get their mass. And this was predicted back in the 1960s by Scottish physicist Peter Higgs, who went on to win the Nobel Prize for his work in 2013. And what do we know about the Higgs now? Well, we know its mass is 125 times heavier than the proton. We also know that it lives for 10 to the minus 22 seconds before it decays into other particles. 10 to the minus 22 seconds, so that's not much of a life. It's hard to find. It's really hard to find. And and what's incredible is that we now know um, many of the intricacies of these reactions in quite a lot of detail. But despite that, there's still a lot that we don't know, such as is the Higgs boson itself made from smaller particles? And if it gives mass to other particles, how does it get its mass? And there's lots of sort of questions um, like that. And you think the way forward could be by building a Higgs factory. So this is an idea to churn out 50 billion Higgs bosons. And last month, the CERN laboratory, where the LHC is um, uh, cited, um, it endorsed the idea of building a 100-kilometre round super collider that would collide electrons and positrons, that's their antimatter um, equivalent, at energies of 100 tera-electron volts. That's seven times more energetic than the LHC. But the project needs funding and building work wouldn't start until... 2038. Yeah, it's an annoyingly long time away to wait. Um, what? So the idea would be that a more powerful collider could smash up the Higgs bosons and then see what's inside? Well, weirdly, uh, the LHC is actually a bit of a blunt instrument when it comes to the Higgs. Higgs bosons are only produced in roughly one out of a billion proton-proton collisions. Um, and there's a lot of other particle debris that gets thrown out um, at the same time. An electron-positron collider, in contrast, is a much more sort of precision machine. It can make Higgs bosons really precisely without all that, you know, other particle debris around. And by creating like vast numbers of these Higgs bosons, um, physicists will be able to make measurements much, much more precisely than they can at the LHC. And they can look for anything that doesn't fit that standard model. We want to tell you about a live online event on Thursday, the 23rd of July. It's called the Art of Statistics. Now, it's been said that we live in a post-truth society in which emotional responses dominate balanced consideration of evidence. So it's vital we understand how to communicate statistics and scientific uncertainty. Yep, we've got a live talk by the renowned statistician David Spiegelhalter. He'll talk about the challenges of clear communication during the COVID-19 outbreak and about the wider question, can we communicate deeper uncertainty about facts, numbers or scientific hypotheses without losing trust and credibility? And it's hosted by Val, 
Yes, it's hosted by me, and I have to say, I can't wait to talk to David Spiegelhalter. He's been um, so prominent uh, in the in the media in the UK during this uh, break. Um, it's a live event on Thursday, the twenty third of July, and you can get an early bird discount now. Check out newscientist.com/events for more details. Next up, Rowan, you've been looking at a neglected problem of animal farming. Yeah, when we talk about the environmental impact of livestock farming, we're usually concerned with the impact on climate change because of the greenhouse gas emissions, or we're concerned with the welfare issues around industrial animal farming, or we're concerned with the biodiversity impact of, you know, having to cut down so much forest to raise cattle. All of which are very valid concerns. They are, and now we've got another one. Oh no, (laughs) tell us more. (laughs) Well... This is about the nitrogen emissions that are tied to global livestock production. So about 10 years ago, uh, a big group of scientists made an assessment of the limits to safe living for humans on Earth. And they identified nine boundaries that we shouldn't break for the good of our future. And there were things like pollution in the oceans and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the state of the ozone layer, the loss of biodiversity and so on. Um, And one of the boundaries was about the flow of nutrients vital to life, such as nitrogen and phosphorus. Right. So we know that we've been over fertilising our crops and this causes all sorts of problems when you get nitrates running off farmland into water. Yeah. And the overuse of fertiliser is directly contributing to climate change because nitrogen fertiliser turns into nitrous oxide, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, So a new study by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization has found that livestock farming on its own accounts for about a third of all humanity's nitrogen emissions. That means that meat and dairy production on its own breaches the lower limit of the planetary safety boundary for nitrogen emissions. So this is another piece of evidence showing that we have to cut down on meat and dairy. Yes. Or is there anything else we can do? Well, not really. We, We have to cut down. I mean, there are ways to more precisely apply fertiliser to crops, and we have to start doing that. Um, But there's no doubt that we're massively overeating animals and animal products to the detriment of of our planet, of our health, and, of course, to animal welfare. Um, And there's this new study, which uh, was reported by Adam Vaughan in this week's MAG. uh, It shows that the overwhelming bulk of the emissions, 68%, come from crops that are grown just to feed animals, And two thirds of the emissions from livestock come from Asia, uh, in particular in China. And we know that diet is changing rapidly in China as it gets richer and people want more meat in their diets. Yeah, and China is also shifting to ever bigger farms, which reduces their ability to recycle manure. So you're getting these um, massive piles of manure and that makes more nitrogen. Um, And that's more nitrogen to get rid of, but, um, but just as bad other welfare concerns about these mega farms. And we're seeing similar concerns in the US and in the UK. So there's no good takeaway from all of this, is there? Not really. Um, I, well, the, the takeaway is at least we know what's going on. We know that these are the problems and we know what we have to do. But it is a really massive problem. The carbon dioxide emissions from our food are bad enough and we're already not dealing with that. And nitrogen is just another really big concern here. What we need to do is communicate the problem, I think, um, but also provide a solution, an alternative. Yeah, and there are good alternatives. Like, I only drink oat milk these days, and I absolutely love the stuff. Um, And fake meat is now almost the same in texture and in taste as as real meat, and certainly when it's in a burger. 
Yes, and we've reported a lot recently about the advances in making lab-grown meat or plant-based meat, in inverted commas. Yeah, this is the way forward. Um, We spoke a few months ago on the podcast about this lab-grown shrimp, which is coming up, which is supposed to be really good. I can't wait for that. Um, You know, we've got to make all this stuff as good as real animal products, and then there's going to be no reason to eat the destructive and harmful real stuff. While we're on the environment and climate change, did you see that the construction of three big oil and gas pipelines in the US has been thwarted in the courts? Yes, that's the Keystone XL pipeline, isn't it? Yeah, that's so that's the massive, um, long delayed pipeline, oil pipeline between Canada and Nebraska. The Supreme Court have rejected the Trump administration's attempt to build it. Um, that's been a focal point. The Keystone XL pipeline has been a focal point for environmental protests for years. This is a this is great news from a climate change point of view. Um, what are the other pipelines? Uh, there was one from North Dakota to Illinois that's been shut down by the courts, and a gas pipeline on the Atlantic coast has also been cancelled. Um, you know, there's loads more pipelines still being built, so this is by no means a sudden pivot to renewable energy in the US, but it is showing how legal challenges are getting better at stopping fossil fuel development. Um, you know, we don't have a, a climate hope or doom segment this week, but this is a, at least a glimmer of hope. That's our sci-fi alert. Rowan, this usually means we've got something in the real world that's been in sci-fi. What is it this week? This week it's a preview of three new missions to Mars that are all launching soon. First launch is on July the 14th, or that's when the launch window opens, um, and it's from the United Arab Emirates. They're launching their first ever interplanetary spacecraft. It's on a Japanese rocket. Uh, It's a Mars orbiter. And then uh, China's launching an orbiter and lander, which is their first Mars mission too. Uh, and then NASA are launching their another Mars rover called Perseverance. We'll definitely come back to Perseverance near the time of the launch. But tell us about the UAE one. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, it really is. It's called Hope or Amal in Arabic. Um, it's an orbiter. It's going to make the first global map of the Martian atmosphere and climate. But as well as that scientific sort of first it's a really big deal for the Emirates. They're investing a lot in science and they want to change their image, you know, as this oil-rich nation. They want to become a knowledge economy. Um, It's taken them six years to get here and they didn't even have a space agency when the project began. Um, And they basically ordered to get um, a spacecraft to Mars in time for the birthday of the country, which is next year. Well, that's, um, you know, that's, that's incredible. And what about the Chinese one? Yeah, it's really, really ambitious. It's China's first mission to Mars. It's an orbiter and a lander. Uh, If all goes well, the lander is scheduled to get there in February next year. And all of these are launching now because we've got a Mars launch window at the moment, don't we? Um, Yeah. What what is that? Yeah, so every 26 months, Mars and Earth are nicely aligned for a a month. And that's when we tend to schedule missions to Mars because it's quicker to get there. Although I did see a paper this week by planetary scientists arguing that it's quicker to swing by Venus to get to Mars. And that's because of our gravity assist? Yeah, so you do the slingshot around Venus and it speeds you on your way to Mars more quickly and you don't have to then hang around waiting for this every 26 months alignment. And if it's quicker to get there, then you won't need to bring as much fuel or if we have a crewed mission, you wouldn't need to take as much food. Yeah, so it's much cheaper. It'd be you know, supposedly a bit easier to make the rocket... Um, And it also means you don't have to stay on Mars for as long. So at the moment, um, planned crewed missions, you'd have to 
get to Mars, then wait for ages for another alignment window to get back. And with this sort of slingshot, you, you could just go to Mars for a month and come back. And you'd get the chance to visit and study Venus on the way past. So um, so what's the sci-fi link this week, Rowan? All right, so this is a book written in Arabic. Uh, it has been translated into English. Uh, in English, it's called Journey to Mars. It's by the Syrian author Nabil Kochaji. Um, I wanted to mention it because there's a lot of science fiction from the Arab world that most Western readers are probably unaware of. I certainly was. Um, and so the launch of the first Arab world mission to Mars seemed like a great time to mention it. And while I'm at it, I came across a really interesting piece of Muslim science fiction, which is also one of the first works of feminist science fiction. It's a short story called Sultana's Dream from 1905 by a Bengali writer, Rokeya Sakawat Hossein. And in her story, gender roles are reversed and the world is run by women, following a revolution in which women use their scientific prowess to overpower men. And I mention this because the science lead for the Emirates Mars mission is a woman, Sarah Al-Amiri, and 80% of the science team for the Mars mission are women. Fantastic. This week's cover feature is about gravity, and it even includes the possibility of gravitational rainbows spreading through the universe, which sounds incredible. Val, tell us more. Yes, this all comes from a new theory of massive gravity developed by Claudia Rama at Imperial College and her colleagues. They were looking for a way to explain why the expansion of the universe is accelerating at the rate we observe and not at the rate that quantum theory and general relativity predict. So why is it massive? Well, quantum theory says that every fundamental force is carried by a particle. So the electromagnetic force, for example, is carried by photons. Uh, And similarly, uh, gravity is carried by particles called gravitons, which up until now have thought to have been massless. Claudia de Ram and her colleagues have overturned that idea and shown that they can actually have mass. And that turns out to be a really big deal. Right. But we we know what photo we can make photons right and we can measure photons but no one's ever spotted a graviton you're right you're right rowan but quantum theory is so successful that physicists are as certain as they can be that they exist um quantum theory it famously says that waves can be particles and particles can be waves and the fact that we've detected gravitational waves suggests that gravitons will be out there as well and um, what have they done to suggest that they have mass, that gravitons have mass, if that's not too complicated to get into? Well, for a long time, physicists have tried to introduce massive gravitons into the theory, but the maths showed a real problem. Um, these massive gravitons would end up creating a chain reaction that would erase the universe, which is a problem, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah just a little one. So what Claudia Duram has done is look at models of general relativity with extra dimensions of space-time and found that it is possible to introduce massive gravitons um, without these problems. Right, so then if if gravitons do have mass, then what's the impact of them? Well, it's huge. It actually changes the way we think gravity operates across the universe. And it touches on all sorts of processes in the cosmos, from its early evolution to how it will all end. And it would even change the orbits of planets and even the moon's orbit. Yeah, and talking of the moon... So of all the stuff that the Apollo astronauts left on the moon, there there were mirrors there, right? So could we fire lasers at the moon to test this? 
Well, you, you're right, you know, nearly 50 years on, the mirrors are still there. The lasers are still being fired at them. And um, and these mirrors are being used to measure the distance to the moon and test certain aspects of relativity. But the effects we're talking about here are really, really small, about a nanometer every month. And a better way, uh, we think, is instead to look at gravitational waves. Right. Remind us what these are. These are what happen when you get massive objects like black holes colliding. Yeah, so these are ripples of space-time that spread through the universe um, and they're created by massive gravitational objects like black holes or neutron stars colliding. Now, if gravitons have mass, then it means they don't have to travel at the speed of light. So gravitational waves travelling across space would spread out, a bit like light does when uh, it passes through a raindrop and diffracts. The different colours of light travel at different speeds in water. Uh, And so that's why you get a rainbow. Wow. So you'd get different kind of shades of gravity, different speeds of gravity. Yeah. So, and this is what a gravitational rainbow is. Um, Now, gravitational wave detectors here on Earth, like LIGO, have looked for gravitational rainbows and and haven't spotted anything yet. Um, So far, when they've measured the speed of gravity, it's been almost identical to the speed of light but there's still some wiggle room in those measurements and more measurements and future detectors which are much more sensitive could well spot one. I am still having trouble getting my head around the speed of gravity. Yes well you are in good company because all the great minds in physics like Isaac Newton and Einstein have thought long and hard about the speed of gravity. Right so imagine the sun suddenly vanished. Right, like um, if an, a super being managed to pluck it out of space. Exactly. I knew I knew you could imagine a scenario like that. <laughs> so, so, so the question is, when would we notice? Um, now, it wouldn't go dark straight away because light from the sun takes eight minutes and 20 seconds to reach us. Right, because the speed of light is uh, 300,000 kilometres per second. Yeah, there's the speed. The speed of light it isn't infinite. It has, um, a, you know, a well-defined speed. Uh, and so the question is, well, well what about gravity? Um, when would we notice the sun's gravity, which remember keeps the planets in their orbits? When would we notice it going missing? Now, if we believe Newton, then uh, gravity acts instantaneously, and Earth would go careering off into space as soon as the sun disappeared. So that would be crazy wouldn't it there would be eight minutes where we'd still see the sun's light but we wouldn't feel the pull of it yeah exactly um but then we go back to einstein and einstein said that nothing should go faster than the speed of light and that includes gravity so if einstein is right and the sun were to suddenly vanish we'd be fine for eight minutes we wouldn't notice now measuring the speed of gravity is a really challenging measurement to make. Um, But several experiments have done it and have shown that Einstein rather than Newton is right. The speed of gravity seems to be roughly the same as the speed of light. But as I said, there is some wiggle room and measuring these really subtle effects like gravitational rainbows, it's much harder. Uh, Claudia de Ram has written about this in New Scientist this week, so definitely check that out. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Kat. Uh, thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. 
Yes, go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter pod20 at checkout for your discount. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and spread the word. We're on Twitter at newscientistpod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Until next time, take care and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.